Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. <coughs> Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 19. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. Uh, there's something in my throat. It's not COVID, but it's something. So I'm not sure what it is, uh, but <clears throat> a little scratchy today. Isaiah chapter 8. At least it wasn't the tree. Thank you there. That's good. Okay. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, this is one of the most well-known passages related to Christmas in the Bible. We read it last week. I've talked about it several times, I think, in the month of December. And you have parts of it memorized, I'm sure. My hope today, as I'd like to walk through this passage with you, and my hope today is to show you that the light from this passage shines even brighter when you take it in its context because this is a light that shines, that emanates, that emerges from a very deep darkness. Perhaps we can think about it this way. I imagine in the next few days, um, in the next 10 days, you will probably uh, have plans to gather with your family. You'll get together and, and feast and maybe exchange presents. And, and <clears throat> around every table, maybe not in reality, but uh, in your imagination, there'll be an empty chair or two around many of those tables. A variety of reasons why the person who you want to be there is not there. Maybe it's just too far. The distance is too great and they haven't been able to come this year. Or 
Maybe they've been deployed, they're serving overseas, and they're not here to celebrate Christmas with you. Maybe this is a year of death, and you're grieving the loss of someone who could be at the table, but it's not. Those things have, all have their own, those circumstances all have their own particular sorrows. I'm thinking of a particularly different, a, a different reason, though, why there might be an empty chair around your Christmas table. I'm thinking about those who um, cannot or will not come for a host of reasons. Maybe they're not there because addiction has gripped their life and has ravaged it. They're not at your table. In fact, you don't know where they are, that person that you love. Hopefully, hopefully sometime during this week, someone will give them a hot meal and they'll have a warm place to stay. Sometimes those empty places come because a prison is involved. There was a crime, there was an arrest, there was a trial, there was a sentence and an incarceration, and the person you love is not there because they're behind bars. Maybe there's an empty chair around tables because, well, I think of the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. I know it, it was a story, a parable he told. It didn't happen in reality, and, and he never in the story talked about holidays. Um, and as probably a Jewish family, they wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. But prodigals only make it home for the holidays inconsistently. Empty chairs. This is a passage with a promise that is deep enough to describe why Christmas is good news for even those most broken of lives. No one sitting around your table will be perfect. I understand that. No one will be perfect sitting around the table. Nobody comes to the Christmas table with a halo of their own shining over their heads. But there are sometimes some lives that just are so broken by this human condition in which we live in this broken world that it's hard to understand, hard to imagine that they would gladly come and feast with you this season. This is a passage that the promise is big enough and broad enough and deep enough for the most broken of lives. There is no one beyond the borders of the good news of Isaiah's prophecy about the child to be born. I, I, I want to walk through this passage, and there's three simple steps that we're going to follow. We're going to talk, first of all, about the darkness of the conditions in which this promise is made. Then we're going to talk about the light, God's promise to enlighten this dark circumstance. And then we're going to talk about the child, the one through whom God brings the light. So the darkness, the light, then the child. And some of you are wondering about that Latin title that's up there on the board. It's not a misspelling, it's Latin. Uh, in Geneva, during the Reformation, the motto of the city was post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. That seems to be a pretty good title for this passage of Scripture. Let's start by thinking about the darkness, shall we? The darkness. Verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What sort of darkness is Isaiah thinking of in this passage? Well, Isaiah prophesied in the 730s and 720s BC, about 700 years before Christ was born. And at that time, the people he was speaking to in Judah had their eyes on the borders of their land because just to their north was a nation of Israel and just to their northeast was a nation of Syria. And both of them were threatening Judah 
its safety, its existence, its stability. And even beyond the borders farther away was the regional superpower, the Assyrians. Three nations, bigger, stronger, and meaner than Judah. That military threat of those oppressive governments is why in this passage there's so much focus on military might and on the government. We think about darkness. Oppressive government is a darkness that is ever-present in this world. That's the political situation that's going on. But Isaiah is not just concerned with that. He actually has a deeper and a bigger concern. His great concern for the people is their own self-imposed spiritual darkness. He writes about this in his book. In fact, we can go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. It's going to appear on the screen where Isaiah talks about the idolatry of the people, their, their um, superstition, their spiritualism. Look what it says, Isaiah 2, 6. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Then just a couple verses later, 2, 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to their work of their hands to what their fingers have made. The people of Judah have stopped listening to the one true God, and God has stopped speaking through his prophets. They don't care. They're worshiping other gods. They're not listening to the prophets, uh, and, 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 and they're not concerned about their own spiritual darkness. Now, the passage that we read, <coughs> excuse me, starting in verse 19, speaks about... Huh, not just the darkness of them refusing to listen to God, but what they have done that's made things worse. They've compounded their own spiritual darkness. They turned off the lights when they stopped listening to the prophets. Now they're putting paper over the windows to block out all the light. It's getting worse. Here's one of the things that's worse. Verse 19 says that they have turned, they have consulted mediums and spiritists. They've turned to... Uh, um, those who, who claim to be able to speak to the dead and they whisper and mutter when they're doing their incantations. I don't know if you know this, but the same thing is actually happening in the United States. There's a great rise in the United States and in Western Europe in interest in cultish things like this, in mediums, spiritists, astrology, tarot cards, fortune tellers. That's not the way it was supposed to happen. We were told by the intelligent, by the reasonable people in our society that if we all give up our superstitions... You know, superstitions like believing in God and the Bible and miracles and things like that. That if we give up our superstitions, then we'll all be reasonable people and we'll follow rational ideas and we'll be committed to science and the world will be truly enlightened in that way. That's what we were promised. But in reality, uh, having turned from a belief in God, now people will embrace just about anything. It was happening in Judah it's happening in our own world. Now, verse 12 tells us, so verse 19 talks about spiritists. I didn't read verse 12, but flip back with me to verse 12. Where else are there people turning? They're tur they won't listen to God, so they turn to spiritists and mediums. Now, verse 12, look what it says. Actually, we'll start reading in verse 11 of chapter 8, Isaiah 8, 11. <clears throat> this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty, <clears throat> the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. 
He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So where else did they turn? From, from God to spiritists and mediums. And now verse 12 tells us that they have turned to conspiracies. This is important for us to think about because we live in a culture where there's a rising tide of conspiracy theories. You can think about 9-11 truthers or those who were so wrapped up in the QAnon conspiracy, or uh, there's been a host uh, from all different directions of conspiracies related to COVID-19. And Isaiah here is warning us uh, what conspiracies do. Conspiracy theories rise as a replacement for God. They give you somebody else to fear. When you don't fear him, then what should we fear? Well, we'll fear the industrial complex, the military industrial complex, or we'll fear, we'll fear this cabal, the secret cabal of businessmen, or we'll fear this government. If God isn't in charge, we better find out who is. We better figure out who is so we know who to revere, who to fear, who to honor. That's the chief danger of conspiracy theories is that they distract you from your rock-solid confidence in God. If God isn't speaking, we've got to turn to mediums so that we get a message. If God is in charge, we've got to figure out who it is who is really pulling the strings. They turn off the lights when they stop listening to the prophets. Now they're covering the windows by turning to these mediums and these conspiracy theories. Things are getting dark. Verse 20 says, If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And then it goes on, verse 22 um, talks about, well, verse 21, we'll, we'll continue there. Where does this lead? Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. Now, the hunger he's thinking about is at the time that Isaiah is prophesying, the people are quite wealthy, but um, he's anticipating the, the day that the Assyrians invade and it's going to ruin their economy. Famine results from war and the people are hungry. And notice what they do. When they're famished, they will become enraged. Do you have anybody in your family who gets hangry? Right, they're hungry and then they get angry. Look, they're famished and they're enraged. It's a biblical concept, being hangry. I'm not commending it. I'm not, I'm not telling you to be hangry, but it happens even in the Bible. They're famished and they're angry. Who are they angry at? They're angry at the king and they're angry at God. They're cursing heaven. And then verse 22, they'll look toward the earth. And what do they see down on the earth? Only distress and darkness and gloom and utter darkness. This is how lost they are. They're looking up to heaven and they're angry at God because of their suffering. And they look around at the earth to see who can help me here. There's no hope there. There's no hope here. They're in darkness. Now, I'm not sure if this, is, if this matches how we might describe the course of a broken life, but this is about as low as Isaiah can go. The disconnected from God, refusing to listen to him, seeking answers elsewhere in idols, mediums, conspiracies, and they come to the inevitable conclusion because they're not going to find answers there that there's no hope anywhere at all. Darkness, utter darkness. Now, darkness is a common theme in the Bible, and John adds something here. The Gospel of John adds something I think that is helpful. Look at John 3.19 and what it says. 
This is the verdict, speaking of Jesus, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. That's so odd. Go ask an addict, do you love your addiction? They'll say no. Ask someone in a, uh, living through a very broken relationship and say, do you love your broken relationship? No, of course not. But notice what John says. People love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. It's surprising. What is the darkness good for? The darkness is a good place to hide. It's a good place to hide your secret pleasures. And it's a good place to hide your shame from the darkness that has been visited upon you. This is the Bible's description of humanity at its lowest here. Oppression, idolatry, spiritism, distress, gloom, shame. How accurate does that sound to you? This is not a pleasant picture. It's so contrary to the message that we often receive. One of the messages that is so popular in our culture. In fact, it's the theme of nearly every children's cartoon. That you just need to live by your own heart. You need to find the truth within and you need to live out of that. And, and if you find your true self inside and you express your true self, then you'll finally be happy and, and your life will be satisfying and good. How, how contrary that is to this message. Like this, uh, Isaiah says, your life is dark because you stopped listening to God and you've introduced darkness into your life. And, and uh, in contrast to that, we're told, not to listen to God, listen to yourself, listen to your heart, and then you'll find life. Which one of those <clears throat> messages is true? I actually think you already intuitively know. You already intuitively know. Looking within for the answers sounds good. It's very affirming, but that's not actually the way you live. Think about the time that you spend trying to get help from other people or advice, the, the, the blog posts you read, the articles you read, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, the, the news stories that you watch, trying to get help, some help from out there because you just know the answers aren't in here. Or think about how much time you spend trying to find answers from people, uh, or not answers, but uh, uh, affirmation from people outside of your life. Is there someone who will tell me that I'm good enough? Is there someone who will tell me that I'm doing things right? Or is there someone that I can be in a relationship with that will give me stability and contentment and satisfaction? You know, you know this, and I'm not trying to insult you by saying this. Your shoulders are not broad enough for you to build your own life upon. If you try to do it, you'll just be sinking into deeper darkness. This is the darkness, the context in which the light shines. Let's move number two to the light. We'll talk about the light now. Matthew in verse, uh, chapter 9 begins with geography. In the past, he says, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor. And now he talks about three geographical regions. These were the names that the Assyrians gave to these regions. regions. Galilee of the Gentiles, the way of the sea, and beyond the Jordan very descriptive titles. Uh, 
why, why does Matthew begin with geography? Because he mentions here the places where the Assyrians first conquered the land. These are the darkest of all dark places. And into the darkest of all dark places, the light has come. This is where Jesus first began his ministry. Matthew quotes this passage about Jesus and his ministry into these very, very dark places. It's a reminder to us that the light that comes is entirely of God's grace. It's not anything that these people deserve. God didn't look on the planet and see, hmm, who listens to me the best? Who deserves my presence? God came to the darkest corner of his people, and there he came. It reminds me of, uh, well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, uh, spent the last several months of his life in a German prison, and listen to what he wrote. This is a letter he wrote, uh, part of a letter he wrote to his fiancée. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. God came from the outside. And verse 3 says that when he came, the light that shines is the dawning of joy. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. Light and joy associated in this passage. There's joy with the coming of the light. Uh, And he mentions two images as people rejoice at the harvest and as warriors rejoice at the end of a battle. There's Two jobs he mentions here that are kind of seasonal in their rewards. Um, Farming is one of those jobs. You work and work and work and work and work, and then comes the harvest. (laughs) Now I have resources, and the harvest has come. Or warriors, we don't pay our warriors this way anymore, but back in Isaiah's day, you fight and fight and fight and fight and fight, and then you win, finally, a battle, and and (laughs) now you get the plunder from the battle. Joy. It's a reminder for us at Christmas, some of us, some of us Christians, we want to take the birth of Jesus seriously, and and we should, we should take it seriously, and sometimes our seriousness about the birth of Jesus, sometimes we look around and we see how people celebrate Christmas, and it's frustrating sometimes, because it's too loud, it's too noisy, it's too tacky, it's too distracting. People aren't paying attention to the real reason for the season. There's no command in the Bible. Do you know this? No command in the Bible to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So we should be serious. Joseph Bottom wrote an article in 2015. He called it Joyous Surrender, a Rhapsody in Red and Green. He writes in this book about his friend, in this article about his friend who's a very faithful Christian who doesn't want to get wrapped up in the tacky, loud, distracting um, holiday events. So he goes to his lawn, his, his woods behind his house, and he doesn't get a tree. He finds the plainest stick that he possibly can. And he brings it into his house and he puts it in a pot on his table and he makes a couple uh, paper stars out of old paper and he hangs it on his, this terrible stick and he celebrates thank, uh, Christmas seriously. And Joseph Bottom says it's a terrible idea. Listen to his paragraph, what he writes about his preference. He says, give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing out on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. 
Give me snow piled to the rafters, the dozen nativity scenes my wife scatters wildly around our house like breadcrumbs leading back through the woods. Give me houses so lit up that the neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense that they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. Gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nutmegged that the school children carolers cough and sputter as they try manfully to gulp it down. Tastefulness, he says, is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. And Christmas isn't tasteful isn't simple, isn't clean, isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded in this world. What else do you expect us humans to do? We're only human. This news is so big. It's so big. It's so joyous. Who would be surprised that we would be a little tacky and a little too exuberant and a little too lavish and a little too sometimes weird? This news is so big. It's so good. Uh, he, he writes, Bottom actually wrote this too, uh, writes this too. A follower once asked St. Francis whether it was allowed to eat meat on the Feast of Christmas, because that seems a little bit too celebratory, you know, to have meat. And St. Francis said, shouted in reply, on a day like this, even the walls eat meat. And if they cannot, then let them be spread with meat. Some of you have toddlers who do that, I understand. But you know what he's getting at. This is a season for lavish joy, even when it's sometimes a little weird. God has broken into the world light and joy. Now, verses four and five speak about this, again, in terms of a military victory. And he mentions Midian. You remember Midian. You know the story, whether you've thought about it or not. In Judges chapter six, the Midianites, about 700, 600 years before Isaiah, the Midianites invaded the land and they came with a huge army, so large, in fact, that they couldn't even count their camels. You're supposed to gasp when you read that in the book of Judges. Whoa. They come, and God reaches out to a faithless coward named Gideon. And God says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver the people from the Midianites. And, and Gideon calls an army together, and God whittles it down, whittles it down. He's 300 soldiers. And with 300 soldiers and God's help, uh, the Israelites defeat the Midianites. It's astounding. That's what it's going to be like, he says, this great military victory. Now, remember, the darkness is in part military. So the light here comes in a military governmental context. I wonder, I wonder, this makes me wonder about Isaiah and how he would write if, let's say that the darkness that the people were experiencing, the suffering they were experiencing was not military, but it was poverty. Then I wonder how verses four and five might be different. If, if Isaiah might write some wonderful um, Hebrew poetry about feasts and plenty and abundance. I wonder if, if the great source of darkness, if it was loneliness, if, if Isaiah might write some wonderful poems and lines about big families and about deep friendships where you talk for hours and hardly notice the time's gone by. 
I wonder if, if the people in Judah were experiencing um, uh, mental failure, some kind, just brain, memory is, is going. If Isaiah wouldn't write Hebrew poetry about huh, winning Je- Jeopardy championships or doing quadratic equations in your head. Here's the light. It's the source of great joy. And that's the way it comes. And it comes in the form of a person, the child. Number three, we'll talk about the child now. The darkness, the light, and the child. Now we come to the Christmas promise, verse six. For to us a child is born. It should strike you as strange that this is where the passage begins with a child because he's just been talking about the battlefield and now he wants to bring in babies And trust me, on the battlefield, babies are close to useless. They can't hold guns or spears. They can't uh, uh, launch missiles. Babies are useless on a battlefield. In fact, they're worse than useless. They're a liability on the battlefield. They don't belong. Why does Isaiah say, undress a child is born? Doesn't make any sense. Well, I can think of a couple of reasons why he does this. On the one hand, Isaiah has babies on the brain here. He's actually thinking in this context, in this passage about his own children. Look at Isaiah 8, verse 18. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, what is he talking about? Skip with me back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahershalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahershalal Hashbaz, which is a mouthful. It wouldn't fit in any of the little bubbles that you need for standardized tests. Mahershala Hashbaz, and it's not a good name either. It's a name that means, uh, that, that speaks to judgment coming. Verse four, for before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria, Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Judgment, name your baby, judgment is coming because before he's old enough to speak, judgment is coming. Mahershala Hashbaz. Isaiah has babies on the mind. He said in Isaiah 7, 14, didn't he? He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Um, Isaiah 7, 14 is going to appear on the screen right now. Yeah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. There's a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah's got babies on the mind. So maybe he, that's why he says, for unto us a child is born. Maybe. Maybe he mentions the baby because he's thinking about the miracle of Gideon. It's impossible that Gideon with 300 men could defeat the Midianites. It's impossible. It's impossible that a baby would come to rescue God's people. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking about the person that he identifies Isaiah later as the servant. See, this child he writes about in Isaiah 9 is going to grow up and he's going to become God's great servant. And what's he going to do? How's he going to save? He's going to save by being pierced for transgressions 
and crushed for iniquities. Maybe God's, uh, Isaiah starts by talking about a child who's going to be born because of this strange plan that God has. God sent a savior. And, and in, in this moment that looked like, you might be mistaken in thinking that it's a moment of great weakness, this savior, Jesus, laid down his life for us. He took to himself all the consequences for the darkness that we have introduced into the world and he bore God's wrath when he died on the cross for us in our place. Maximus the Confessor said, um, if you're looking for a good baby name, Maharshala Hashbaz, cross that off your list, but put Maximus on it. Maximus the Confessor said, for the sake of my salvation, Christ, through his own death, voluntarily made my condemnation his own. What a strange way for God to put the world right, for God to fix the world, to send a child who would grow up and die, rise again and ascend from heaven. And because of his death, God offers life and forgiveness to all who receive it. It doesn't matter how broken your life is. It doesn't matter how far away from God you have run. It doesn't matter how much darkness you have introduced into your life, how much of it is self-inflicted. God says, in Jesus, you may come and find forgiveness in his name. It doesn't matter who you are, you can come and find life and forgiveness in Jesus. A child is born, a son is given. Now, when we hear the word son in Isaiah, you should think about David's son, the son of David. We talk about that a lot. We'll pass on that for now. But then there's this mention of his names. How do we know? How do we know that this promised child is actually able to help us? How do we know that he actually can help us, those uh, uh, with very broken lives? Well, we know because of his names. He's talked about the name of his son, Isaiah does. Now he talks about the name of, names of the son. And I want to give you some titles to associate with these names. With the name Wonderful Counselor, you should think of wisdom. Wisdom. Now, uh, counselor, he's not referring here to a psychologist or psychotherapist, somebody that you would go to to talk about the problems as important as that, though that role is. That's not what he has in mind here. The word counselor here means um, military advisor, someone who strategizes a plan, someone who has the wisdom to point the way. The New, uh, the New English translation, the Net Bible, suggests that at one point in time that we translate wonderful counselor as extraordinary strategist which is about as unpoetic as a calculus formula. And what would Handel have done with that? And his name shall be called Extraordinary Strategist. It just doesn't, it doesn't sing at all. But, but this child is going to be able to point the way because he's going to know the way to go. He can help us find our way out. Mighty God, think of the word power. Think of the word power with mighty God. He knows what to do. He's the wonderful counselor. And he, he can do it because he has all power to do it. He's the mighty God. Actually, you could translate this warrior God. El Gibor is what it is. Mighty warrior God. With the with name everlasting father, think of the word family. Family. Now, 
Some of you might be tempted to, to get involved in a little Trinitarian confusion. How can the Son be called the everlasting Father? Because this is God the Son we're talking about, Jesus, not God the Father. So how can he be called everlasting Father? Well, this passage is talking about his role in the kingdom, in David's kingdom. He will be the father of his people. That's the role he will take. Who's the father of our country? George Washington's the father of our country. Uh, who's the father of this kingdom? Jesus is the father of this kingdom. He's the everlasting father. George Washington is dead. Jesus will not die. Prince of peace. You're, gonna believe, you're not going to believe the creativity with this. The word I think you should think of is peace. Peace. Now, notice though, the peace that he brings does not come because he gets everybody to lay down their arms and he negotiates treaties. The peace that this son brings is peace through military victory. He, he um, disarms all of his foes by defeating them completely. And that's how he brings about peace through this strength that is his. How do we know he can help us? He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Now, there's three things to note that I want you to see in this passage before we finish. First of all, you should recognize God's timetable is not your own. Isaiah prophesied these things 700 years before Jesus was born. And it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was born. And these prophecies have not been fulfilled in all of their fullness. That is not my timetable. I want God to fix the brokenness in my life immediately, preferably before lunchtime. And Isaiah, speaking of these things that are going to happen 700 years in his, in his future, he'll be long dead. And then we're still waiting. You should recognize that if you place your hope, when you place your hope in, in this promise from God, you are placing your hope in a reality that you may not see in this life. You may be dead before these things come to full-orbed fulfillment. All the saints who have died before you, have come before you, died without this passage happening in all its fullness. You might die, and these things will not be fulfilled in all their fullness, and, and, but they'll still happen. Why? Because they're not dependent upon you, these promises. Which leads me to the second thing I want you to see. Verse 7 says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How do we know this is going to happen? As much as you may want these things, this description to happen, you should understand that God is even more zealous that they happen, more enthusiastic, more passionate than you are. He really wants to. He's really committed to bringing an end to the darkness. He's zealous about it. You can trust him with this promise. He's more excited about it than you are. And third, notice the passage, it's, uh, the phrase, it says, for to us, a child is born. This promised child, I know it's an expression of God's grace. I know it's, it's the light that God sends. I know it's, it's an expression, his coming is an expression of God's zeal. So I, he came for his father, I know that. But he, the passage says he came for us, for you. You who are in deep darkness, the child has come for you. And the only question, the most important question of Christmas is, will you receive him, the one who has come for you? 
Todd Hunter was a pastor several years ago, 30 years ago or so in Anaheim, California. One Sunday they were gathered in church to, to worship and uh, uh, there was a car accident outside, hit one of the telephone poles, one of the power lines and knocked out the power to the church. And uh, they sat there in the auditorium in pitch darkness. Uh, they did not have a security and t- safety team like we do that checked the emergency lighting and the emergency lighting didn't work either. So they sat there in complete and total darkness. Now, you know, this is 30 years ago. If it happened today in our church, we have wonderful windows. But if we were suddenly sitting in pitch dark, you know what you'd do. You'd get out your cell phone and shine up and everybody, it'd be beautiful. It was wonderful. But this is 30 years ago. Uh, and there they sat in dark. And, and, and Todd Hunter writes about how disorienting it was. I mean, he just, he'd just been looking and the lights had just gone off. And he knew where he was, but it was that the darkness was so disorienting. And he sat there for a minute and he thought to himself, somebody's got to go to the children's classrooms. Children's classrooms were behind the platform in a different room. Someone, someone's got to go and make sure that the children are okay. But he, he was, it was so dark, he couldn't even think of how far it was to the door and how he's going to make it there. But there was a, a woman in the church who had a little flashlight in her purse. Uh, mother's purses have saved a lot of people. And, and, and she pulled out this little flashlight and she turned it on and she left her seat to herself, go and get her child. And Todd Hunter says that that tiny little light, tiny little bulb, four watts, this huge room. But that's all that we needed to, to reorient ourselves, to know where we were, who we were with, and that things will be okay here. We're going to figure this out. Just that, that tiny little light made all the difference. Jesus is God's great gift to us, and he is the reorienting light who's going to set all things right. That's good news. It's good news for all of us. Regardless of how broken your life is, Isaiah has good news. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today, and we thank you for your great mercy to us through the Lord Jesus. We are thankful to you for Isaiah the prophet who spoke to us about uh, Jesus coming. How wonderful, how, how awesome it is that the one you promised, Father, is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes the darkness that we see in our own lives and in the lives of those that we love is so discouraging. We're not filled with joy. We're, we're sometimes, we live in this gloom and this despair. We're grateful to you for this reminder of the light that you promised, the son who has come, and he is reorienting uh, to us. I know Isaiah is long gone, but we pray, Father, that you would fulfill these promises that you delivered through him and that you would fulfill them soon in all of their great glory. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.